Are today's chicken farmers living in a Dickensian nightmare? And why is Kristen coming for your burgers? Hello, and welcome to Pullback, where we explore big new ideas and ask, is this a real solution or a distraction? Pullback is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network of Progressive Canadian Podcasts. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with my co-host, Kyla Hewson. On today's episode, we are joined by AJ Albrecht, the Managing Director at Mercy for Animals, to talk about how industrial animal agriculture is a dystopian hellscape for farmers, farm workers, farm animals, the people who live around farms, people trying not to die in a climate apocalypse, pretty much everyone, really. Fundamentally, this episode is about why we need to break up with big agriculture and why we need to help farmers to move on to plant-based crops like mushrooms and hemp. Plant-based foods are having a moment. Sales for meat substitutes alone are projected to grow to $85 billion by 2030. And demand for plant-based ingredients is expected to grow to $13 trillion by 2025. If you enjoy this conversation, please show your love by donating to an animal rights group. And you know, also with a five-star review and your preferred listening platform, not that we're desperate or anything like that. (laughs) All right, let's get started. My name is AJ Albrecht. Uh, My pronouns are she, her, hers. And I am the managing director for Mercy for Animals US and Canada. Mercy for Animals' mission is to create a just and sustainable food system. And we are working to do that by ending industrial animal agriculture or factory farming. Uh, In my role, I oversee all of the programs in US and Canada. So we Uh, employ interventions ranging from government affairs, working with policymakers, to corporate engagement, working with large companies, to our transformation project where we partner with farmers. We really believe that ending factory farming is going to take lots of different interventions. So we focus on numerous different program areas throughout the organization in our work. Uh, I'm a lawyer by education, um, that I'm I'm a recovering attorney, I guess you could say at this point, as I'm no longer practicing since joining the executive team a a few years ago. What kind of drew you to this line of work? If you started out as a lawyer and now you are working with Mercy for Animals, like what was your sort of pathway there? Put very simply, it was a dog, uh, (laughs) (laughs) a a non-human animal who, who really changed my life. Um, Unfortunately, we lost him uh, last year. But really just realizing that these animals need advocates and having grown up around lots of animals um, and realizing that it could be a career path was honestly a dream come true. Oh, that's really, I'm sorry to hear for your loss, but it sounds like it's inspired you to do some really incredible work and I'm excited to get more into that. (gasps) Is that a dog in the background that I see of your video? There are actually (laughs) three of them in my office right now, um, hoping they're going to stay quiet. (laughs) That's fine. We are here for surprise animal cameos. (laughs) Then you're in the right place. Do you have like a history with activism or is Mercy for Animals your first foray into the space? I would say that advocacy is probably what I'd use to describe my career uh, up until Mercy for Animals. I was a litigator for six years in family law. I did a lot of domestic violence work advocating for survivors. Then I moved into the animal law space and was working on ending breed-specific legislation for pit bulls, which is the type of dogs that I share my home and life with, as well as outdoor cats, trap neuter return policies. So really more of that inside game advocacy, working with decision makers to influence policy, whereas Mercy for Animals does both inside game as well as collective action and really getting consumers and constituents to also raise their voices to make change. So do identify as an activist now, but my career has largely been in advocacy and the law up until this point. Well, I mean, we need that for sure. So that's amazing (laughs) that you have history in that. Can you tell us a little bit more specifically about like the work that Mercy for Animals does? Absolutely. So we have, as I mentioned, numerous program areas, uh, starting with government affairs. Our government affairs and public policy team works on the local, state, and federal levels of the U.S. government, uh, not doing any government affairs work in Canada just yet. 
Uh, but we are influencing policies that really fall into two big buckets, uh, so to speak. First, trying to reduce suffering for animals who are trapped in the food system. So that can look like cage-free policies for egg-laying hens and uh, ending gestation crates for mother pigs, for example. And it can also look like requiring kinder slaughter. And that's a very tricky thing to chat about. But the way that broiler chickens, in particular our chickens raised for me, are slaughtered is absolutely horrific. So trying to make these incremental changes. The second bucket being uh, making plant-based food options more accessible, affordable, and delicious, and honestly just making them the norm. So that's the other aspect of our, our government affairs work. Then we have our corporate engagement team. They also work in both of those spheres, so animal welfare reforms as well as plant-based. But rather than influencing government policymakers, they're interfacing with large corporations. So getting large corporations to commit to, for example, a better chicken commitment, which uh, seeks five very simple things ranging from better lighting in chicken houses to, again, uh, more humane slaughter instead of live shackle slaughter for chickens. And they also are working with uh, corporations to get them to have more plant-based options available to consumers. We also have our campaigns and organizing departments, which are focused on that collective action. So getting folks like you and listeners to engage with these issues and to interact with their decision makers uh, to bring about these changes. Uh, as we've seen in other social justice movements uh, very recently, we can have power if we all work together and our organizing and campaigns departments uh, are very focused on tactics like that. And then finally, we have our transformation project, and that is our newest program area. We launched that project in 2019. And that is really our way of partnering with farmers and creating replicable models of what's possible for these existing CAFOs or concentrated animal feeding operations, aka factory farms. There are so many farmers who want to get out of this system. They are exploited by this extremely consolidated meat industry and they need other options. Uh, they're not making money for the most part. Uh, these small family farmers are looking to contribute to the food system in a more positive way. So we are arming them with resources and information and guidance on how they can use their existing structures to grow plants. So we have farmers in our program who are growing mushrooms in chicken houses, uh, farmers who are growing hemp and then uh, using the chicken houses to create CBD oil. We even have farmers who are using a former chicken house as a dog rescue facility, really having come full circle. So those are the bulk of our, our program areas and the interventions that we are employing right now. Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on that last theme that you were talking about, because I remember while ago reading uh, Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Foer. And one of the things that I think he said he was surprised by in the book is he was expecting to get a lot of pushback from farmers, but was really surprised to see that they didn't like the system either. So I'm wondering if you could talk, talk to us a little bit about why industrial agriculture um, is not good for the people that are working um, on those farms as well. Certainly. Yeah. What most folks don't realize is that the truth is right now, most American farmers, this is not their main source of income. And for many of them, it's not a source of income at all. In fact, the majority of them uh, in recent surveys of the agriculture industry have shared that they have other employment and they don't identify as a farmer as their occupation. And that is, that is quite simply because the meat industry has set up this corporate consolidation and the integration of these farmers in such a way that the farmers take on all of the risks and reap none of the rewards. So for example, the farmers that we partner with in the chicken industry in particular, many of them have had these farms in their families for generations and have seen the rise of factory farming, uh, particularly in the 70s when the then USDA 
the head of the USDA said, get big or get out. And that was really when this corporate consolidation and industrialized way of animal agriculture farming started happening. And they've tried to hang on. But essentially what happens is they own, or in most uh, cases, they have mortgages on their chicken houses, which are massive structures. If you've driven in the Southeast in particular, you've probably seen them. And they have to continue upgrading them at their own cost on the whim of the large meat company, poultry company that comes out and says, we're not going to give you any more chickens until you do these humongous upgrades. And these upgrades often cost up to a million dollars. So they're taking out these massive loans to be able to even get the chickens. Then when they get the chickens, they are not in control of the feed. So these chickens are breeds that are intentionally made to grow extremely fast for extremely cheap. So over the course of 40 days, they're going from being the size of my palm to the size of a football, uh, which is really incredible to think about. And then the integrator, the large meat company, poultry company comes back. They take the chickens and the farmers enter into what's called a tournament system. So you don't know what the other farmers that you're competing against have been able to raise in terms of their birds. They may have had better feed for some reason and their birds weigh more and you are on the bottom of the totem pole one month and another month you might be at the top. So you don't know what your income is going to be because you're stacked against all of these other farmers. So as you can imagine, this is not a system that's set up for the farmers to be lucrative. Gone are the days of small family farmers being able to compete. Um, and there's many reasons for that as well, ranging from not having access to slaughterhouses to not being able to have um, economies of scale that are going to allow them to have prices that compete. So yes, like you said, Kristen, or as it was described in the book, this is not a system that most farmers want to be in. In fact, most of them, if given another option, are very desperate to get out but scared because these are powerful, enormous corporations with a lot of political power and social capital that they would be going head to head with if they were to end their contracts. Okay. I have so many follow-up questions. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how do these small farms get in bed with big ag to begin with, right? Like if, if they don't want to be in there... <laughs> How how do these big agricultural firms own the chickens? Can't the farmers like just go get some chicks and then grow them at their own pace and in the way that they would like to? Like what's kind of in the way? Like why? <laughs> <laughs> so much to unpack. Um, so this is a system that essentially you can't compete as a small farmer unless you are able to build your own economy of scale, which right now... A small farmer who wanted to, as you just described, have chickens uh, and raise them and then bring them to slaughter and then sell them. First of all, they have to be able to permeate the market and find ways to bring those chickens to market. Second of all, they have to have access to a slaughterhouse. And the all of these slaughterhouses, in fact, are uh, majority controlled by these poultry companies or big meat companies. So for example, we've spoken with small farmers in uh, the Bay Area of California who realized that in order to make this happen for them, they had to band together and, and have their own slaughterhouse just so that they could raise animals in a more humane way. Um, I should say, of course, that Mercy for Animals as a whole believes that the shift should really be to plant-based, plant-focused farming as opposed to more humane farming. But Incremental change is also something that we are, are cognizant of is important. But all of that to say, the corporate consolidation in our meat industry is such that small family farmers or an individual who wants to farm simply cannot compete. So much so that there has been uh, a push to deconsolidate the meat industry. Um, we have the Farm Bill coming up in 2023. Of course, that's a reauthorization act, which means that unless there are progressive amendments, the same farm bill is passed every five years. And as you can imagine, because our food system is what it is, um, it hasn't been great <laughs> for small farmers or animals or workers. 
But that's where true change will need to happen is in policies that make it so that what you've described can happen. So I saw on the Transformation website that 45% of farmers, I assume in the United States, have a negative net income. How do we have any farmers at all? <laughs> if, if, like, if, it's such a, if it's such a drag on your income, why do it at all? Right. Well, that really goes back to them having to absorb all of the risk and getting little to none of the reward. So I'll describe one of our um, transformation enrolled farmers situations. Uh, They had been farming chickens for years, uh, were approached by a large poultry integrator. Many of their neighbors had also gone under contract with their poultry integrator, that same poultry integrator, um, which is another term for just large poultry company, they realized that they were not going to be able to compete for the reasons that we've just dived into, and they needed to enter into contract. Now, these contracts are very complex intentionally. I mean, imagine when you purchase property, you can't read every word. And these are folks who have always owned their own farm. They've never had to get into the nitty gritty of these contracts. But essentially what this contract does is makes it so that uh, the farmers are no longer in control of their farm. Yes, they are still the owners. um, And yes, they can take out loans and um, continue to mortgage various assets, etc. But they no longer are in control of their income. So the reason you're having this negative net income is because when the chickens come, you don't know how healthy they're going to be. You don't know how many are going to live. Um, There are significant amounts of hens, broiler chickens as well that are dying before they can even go to slaughter. And that's a cost that the farmer has to bear and an emotional cost, right? Because they're, they're required to clean up these dead chicks, dead chickens. Um, And also it's the upgrades. So to have a large poultry company come in and say, oh, wow, your HVAC system is out of date. You need to invest a million dollars or we're not going to bring you chickens anymore. They take out a massive loan and they find themselves paying it off for decades. And the reason they continue to do it is because they don't know another way. They have massive CAFOs on their property. And I should pause for a second and just say, Every farmer has a different lived experience. I don't mean to make a gross generalization of every farmer that's under contract, but what we can generalize is the terrible exploitation that the large meat companies continue to make on these farmers and continue to just push the envelope as much as possible to get as much control and money as they can over these farmers. So you have to put in a new HVAC system, you take out another mortgage, you're paying it off for decades, and the income that you're receiving from selling your chickens to this integrator is just not lining up. And that's how you wind up with net negative income. But sometimes you'll have a really good month and you think that things are changing and you can keep going with this. Uh, But our transformation project is seeking to give them another option uh, and show them another way. Okay, that's actually a perfect transition into talking about what some solutions are. I think it's not a secret to our listeners that, you know, (laughs) factory farms and big agriculture are pretty terrible for the environment. It's also probably not going to be shocking for everyone to learn that it creates this sort of system in which... Farmers are on a treadmill of debt, as I I think I read that particular phrase on Transformation's website as well. And I was like, that is a really good way to describe it. Like this has been going on for decades. And obviously, like it's extremely lucrative. Um, It's extremely successful. We have more meat in supermarkets than obviously we've ever had in like the history of the human race. So what's it going to take to help farmers to get off of this treadmill? And like, how is the Transformation Project doing that? So there are a few different pillars that, as we call them, pillars of change that we are focusing on. So the first is creating a replicable model of what's possible. So specifically, when we're working with these farmers, they want to know, okay, if I take my existing structure that I've been using to raise hogs or broilers, 
and I transition it into growing something else, is there a market for that something else? So say I land on mushrooms, am I going to be able to sell those mushrooms and will I be able to make a profit? So we've partnered with economists all over the country at various academic institutions and we're finding that yes, it it will work. Um, there is a market for this and they will be earning significantly more income uh, than what they're currently doing. Um, we're also showing physically replicable models of, of change. So we have farmers who have already transitioned away from factory farms and are able to, sh- to show how, how, literally how, to grow mushrooms, tomatoes, hemp, use it as a dog rescue. Um, and we have plants that other farmers can use. And we've created a farmer resource hub that is essentially open source uh, and allows farmers to visit and figure out how they can do this. And in the future, we hope to have farms that serve as demonstration hubs for other farmers to visit. So that's the first real pillar of change is creating a replicable model of what is possible. The second is policy. So we really need to shift subsidies. Um, Kylo, and you mentioned that there's more meat uh, than ever. That's absolutely right. Uh, There is more meat being produced even during COVID when the pork industry was claiming that there was going to be a pork shortage. The numbers are now out from 2020 to 2021 and the pork industry significantly increased how much meat they were putting out. So quite simply, the U.S. government is propping up big ag. The U.S. government is propping up big meat with subsidies. They're making it so that even if the meat uh, that is produced doesn't sell, these large meat companies are still earning money. And that needs to change. We need to shift these subsidies towards more environmentally friendly solutions, towards less corporate consolidation to allow small farmers to compete and for plant-based options to be front and center in all of these conversations. And then the third is really shifting the narrative. There is a space for animal rights advocates like Mercy for Animals and the folks that we partner with and for farmers to work together. But there's been a lack of trust in rural communities in particular, of folks like me and the organization that I work for. And we need to rebuild that trust so that we can shift this narrative that agriculture is rainbows and roses. Most folks do not realize that the life cycle emissions of the agriculture sector is more than planes, trains, and automobiles combined. That just is something that is not a part of the discussion when we talk about climate change and global warming. We're just not looking at animal agriculture as being a huge problem. And factory farming is a massive problem, and it's a deep-seated structure that needs to change. And it won't change until we start having these tough conversations and really taking a closer look at how our food is being made. Yeah, I, I think that's so true. Um, I've got two questions related to that. The, the first one is, um, I'm curious to hear the, in the conversations that you're having with farmers, what are you hearing from them? Uh, and are, do you find that that's an effective way to sort of break down the distrust and, and build up more positive relationships? And then on the other side, how do we have those conversations about you know, plant-based options and animal agriculture as a, a climate problem without sort of prompting that reactionary, you know, they're trying to take away our burgers argument that we hear so often. So really, this is a David and Goliath story when you, when you really think about it and what it boils down to. Farmers who are still under contract with big meat are in a really, really difficult position because in order for them to get out of that contract, they have to have another path. And right now, our government and our society does not make another path readily available. It's really been left to uh, the farmers themselves uh, who are doing tremendous work in large part to try and bring about change and to nonprofit advocacy organizations to try and find these other paths. Um, So I think that when you really think about it, when we approach these conversations, we have to be open-minded on both sides uh, and try try and listen and find that common ground. 
So um, just building on what you were saying there, uh, you know, we're hearing a lot from governments about just transitions and sustainable jobs plans and things like that. I'm wondering from the perspective of agriculture, do you think that governments should be getting into incentive programs to get farmers to move to more environmentally friendly crops? And if so, what does that look like um, in your ideal version? Short answer, yes, absolutely. And the optimist in me will say that I think the government is starting to think this way because they're starting to have these conversations. But the solutions, and I'm using air quotes on solutions, that they're exploring are not actually solutions. They are greenwashing or a Band-Aid. So for example, biogas, which is capturing the emissions from factory farming, specifically of pigs, and the properties wind up having these massive they kind of look like a bounce house, like what a kid would use at a birthday party. <laughs> um, and they are they are filled with the gas emissions from, really it's burps, from these animals. And this is being touted as a new renewable resource that the airline industry uh, should be able to use. But it's not, right? Like that's incentivizing more factory farming and higher volume of factory farming. But it's being seen by some as kind of a silver bullet or a magic fix. And I think what we all know when it comes to deep-seated systemic problems, there is no magic silver bullet. Uh, This is, we have to undo these structures piece by piece. Um, So I think it's great that there's an appetite for looking at these just transitions and finding more um, environmentally friendly models, but it's really important that we recognize when something is not a solution and rather just a Band-Aid, flashy, greenwashing fix, so to speak. And that sort of gets me into my second question, which is is really about you had pointed to this this need to discuss animal agriculture as a climate problem, and I totally agree with that. It's a huge problem. But oftentimes when that subject gets raised, there's a really aggressive reaction that, you know, people are coming for our burgers. Is your reaction just like, yeah, deal with it? <laughs> 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 and if not, um, what what is your reaction? Yeah, I mean, yes, there are always going to be folks who have that kind of adverse reaction. And there's such societal norms and gender norms around eating animals. And it's something that we all have to face. But I think the more we can make these plant-based options delicious, first and foremost, and very close second, accessible and affordable, the less we're going to hear that argument. So I really do think that having the Impossible Burger, the Beyond Burger, now Chicken Nuggets in these fast food and fast casual restaurants and meeting people where they're at to allow them to try things. And then having folks realize that they taste great is extremely important. Is it going to be what ends factory farming once and for all? No. I think that we need to have lots of different interventions. We all need to be working on this in whatever capacity we can, because it's all of those interventions together that are going to be the tipping point towards creating a plant-based future rather than an industrial animal agriculture future. I was watching one of the investigative videos that Mercy for Animals has put out, a huge trigger warning if anyone decides, I'll link to it, but um, it's upsetting. It's from the inside of a chicken farm and it's, you know, what you would expect. I think it's important for people to review uh, footage like this every once in a while, just to remind yourselves of what is going on. If you're not a complete, you know, vegan yet, it's always a good little push, you know? Yeah, vegans get a pass, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you guys don't need to watch this. Everyone else, you should watch this. But in, in the video, they were talking about the true cost of cheap chicken. And I found this number really interesting, which is that in order for chickens to be raised in a way that is humane and, you know, what is somewhat ethical considering they're being raised to be eaten, um, chickens should be costing $6 a pound versus right now what it costs is about a dollar a pound, or at least at the time of the video. Like, I think a huge part of this as well is probably just if people just pay the natural price of what something is, like, we're not going to take away your burgers, you're just going to have to 
pay the true cost of it, you know? Yeah, actually a a fun anecdote on that investigation in particular. I'm quite sure the investigation you watched was uh, as a part of our Costco campaign, which was a couple years ago now. Uh, The Costco $5 rotisserie chicken has truly a cult following of folks who just absolutely love that it's $5, um, that it's readily accessible. It's always on the shelves at Costco. And we sought to go see how are those chickens treated? Uh, What are their living conditions like? What is their slaughter like? How are they only $5? And what we uncovered was absolutely horrific conditions. I mean, chickens living in their own filth, chickens who are near death already before slaughter, and chickens that are not being treated the way that Costco describes them as being treated on their website, which uses words like humane, sustainable, high animal welfare standards, etc. Well, like I said, this rotisserie chicken has a cult following and it um, has huge Reddit groups and Facebook groups and these folks who are just fanatics about this rotisserie chicken. And this investigation blew up those groups. And the overall takeaway was all of these rotisserie chicken fanatics saying, I'm willing to pay more. I didn't realize that I was paying $5 because of suffering this terrible. And now that I've seen this, I can't unsee this and I'm willing to pay more. And I think that really underscored that investigations are hard to watch, right? Like I'll be honest, I can hardly watch our footage all the way through. I usually have to take breaks, come back to it, practice self-care. But for people who hadn't seen this before and were consuming these products in large numbers, it seems based on these social media groups, they needed to see this. And Costco needed to know that they were seeing it. Uh, This investigation did bring them to the table. Uh, Nick Kristoff did a New York Times column on it when it first broke. And it it began discussions uh, to create more, more humane treatment of these animals. What I really appreciated about that video in particular is the way that the farmers were shown to be like just another victim in this complex system and not like... Nobody wants to be the guy breaking the necks of chickens that have died before they made it to the slaughterhouse. You know what I mean? Like the the mental health of farmers is not something I had really like, like I knew that it wasn't great because I've been doing this podcast for three years, but it's not something that I had deeply considered. And it's almost like I know that the um, suicide rate uh, for veterinarians is one of the highest for professions. And so like, I can't imagine what it must be like to be one of these farmers that is stuck in a contract. And I'm sure nobody as a kid is like, I'm going to grow up to raise chickens in the worst way imaginable, right? Like nobody wants that. And so it's just, I really appreciated the way that the footage kind of played that. I also had to take, I had to look away a couple of times. It made me cry. (laughs) It's like 11 minutes long. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, thank you for bearing witness to it um, and for for sharing it on here. Um, I think that's really good advice to take breaks to listeners. Um, I would also say one thing we haven't talked about yet is slaughterhouse workers or meat packing uh, processing workers. And I hate to say that there was any good that came out of or that has come out of COVID-19 and the pandemic. But one silver lining for the food system, at least, is that it really shone a light on how slaughterhouse workers are exploited. You might recall that at one point, slaughterhouse workers were dying of COVID-19 in higher numbers than even folks who are incarcerated because they weren't receiving PPE. Our then-President Trump invoked the Defense Production Act in order to force meat processing workers to continue going to work. So just to give an idea of how incredible this was, this is an act that could have been used, for example, to get more respirators to hospitals for folks. Uh, It could have been used to get factories to shift from making scotch tape to making masks Uh, needs that were needed for folks who were sick. But instead, it was invoked because of our insatiable appetite for meat in this country and the government's propping up of the meat industry. And as a result, slaughterhouse workers continually 
were becoming ill and dying. And so were their families. You could see maps of where there were meat processing plants and just the red around those processing plants of these communities that were just ravaged by COVID-19 during this time. And I think that really, as horrific as that was, I think that stayed with people who, again, did not realize that slaughterhouse workers who are in large measure Black, Indigenous, people of the global majority, recent immigrants who need these jobs and can't not show up for work when they're told to stay up for work but they were not even receiving a mask and they're working side by side in these very cramped conditions with inadequate ventilation and becoming sick. And I think that that really did shine a light on not just our food system and how broken it is, but how humans are also victims of factory farming. And that applies to workers, that applies to farmers, as you've touched on. It applies to folks who live near factory farms and don't have fresh, clean air and are suffering from things like asthma and cardiac issues simply because they can't breathe uh, outside. And I think that's a really important takeaway that we should remember and center. And we try to center in our work, even though our name is Mercy for Animals, we recognize that our work is not just to liberate animals from this horrific system, but also to work alongside the humans who are uh, impacted by this terrible system. Yeah, I think that's so true. Um, And I just want to highlight for listeners, because most of our listeners are Canadian, and this week that we're recording, there actually was um, a man in Edmonton who died in a meat processing plant. Um, His name was Samir Subadi. You know, it's a thing that, as you very correctly pointed out, like COVID-19 shone a big light on, not only in the States, but also in Canada. But the the human toll continues, and we got to do something about it, I think. Are legislative solutions the the next big step? Um, And if so, what laws would you like to see? So there is a law right now that has been introduced in both the Senate and the House that would amend the Farm Bill. It's called the Industrial Agriculture Accountability Act, or the IAA. You can read more about it at mercyforanimals.org backslash IAA. And essentially what that does is through seven titles, it shifts the responsibility of this system that's been created and exploits all of those who are touched by it. Uh, back to big ag, back to the meat industry, uh, because really these problems have been created by this industry and they're not uh, at the table in terms of solutions. So for example, some of the things that it does is it uh, mandates a different form of slaughter for chicken called controlled atmosphere stunning, which is much better, not just for chickens who are put to sleep before they're slaughtered, which right now they're often alive. Uh, but also for workers because there's less handling. This also helps with disease outbreak if there's less handling. It's a hot topic right now because uh, avian influenza is, uh, of course, rampant once again. It also modifies our transport laws. So right now in the U.S., we have what's called the 28-hour law. That means that uh, livestock can be transported for 28 hours before they have to stop and have water and rest. I use the word livestock intentionally because it doesn't apply to birds. Uh, In fact, birds have fewer protections under the law than any other animal. Chickens and turkeys are not even included in the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act, uh, which requires, for example, unconsciousness before slaughter. So the IAA is really what we're pushing right now. Um, And if folks are in the U.S., if they go to that website, they can take action, uh, reach out to their members of Congress. I would also say that in Canada, uh, we have been very active um, in the corporate space in particular. We released last year our Canada Animal Welfare Scorecard, and we were pleased that it got a lot of traction both in the media and with the grocers associations and different corporations. I think that Canada and Canadians, and there's actually data to support this, so this isn't just some crazy American making this claim, Canada thinks that they don't have nearly as bad factory farming as the U.S. does, and Canadians believe that they are doing better when it comes to animal agriculture than the U.S., but 
the facts don't really line up with that belief, unfortunately. Um, unfortunately, factory farming in Canada, uh, particularly of broiler chickens, just like the U.S., is a, a huge problem. Also with egg-laying hens is a huge problem. We're releasing this scorecard uh, year after year to really rank these companies as to who is treating their animals uh, the most humanely. And that allows consumers to make good choices and it gives corporations the opportunity to make changes. Something that I heard in one of your recent podcasts was uh, centered on that collective action. And that's just something that I think we all have to remember. I think looking at other social justice movements, for example, the Women's March or the Black Lives Matter after George Floyd's murder, seeing folks really gather together around a common purpose and putting aside nuance, whether you like beyond or impossible better and focusing instead on needing to make systemic change is hugely impactful. I would just add that a lot of our food in Canada comes from the United States. So like not only are we not doing better on our farms, which like we've mentioned before, but the the Canadian farming process is not in a great place. But even if we were, a lot of our food comes from the United States and so does the the globe eats the United States food. So I, I think it's actually like normally we try to bring on like Canadian guests, but I think in this case, <laughs> American agriculture affects every single person on this planet, whether they eat it or not, just because of how big the emissions are apart from everything else. It's great that um, AJ explicitly pointed to the fact that the Canadian agriculture isn't doing better because I think a lot of the times what happens with, it's not just agriculture, it's really like any problem you can name in Canadian society. And because frankly, there's just less information out on Canadian problems, we just assume that it's better. And in a lot of cases, it's not. And um, I'm really glad that you highlighted that animal agriculture is one example of that. I think it's such a good point that the U.S. is also not only transporting food and animal products to other countries like Canada, but it's scary that the factory farming model that is now the norm for the U.S. is now being replicated in other countries. We're now seeing in China, for example, these massive, massive pig farms with their skyscrapers, essentially, of football field after football field of pigs being farmed in intensive, confined ways. So yeah, I think it's a really important point that while most of our conversation today has been around U.S. policy and and what's happening in the U.S., this is not a U.S. problem. I wish that it were because then maybe it would be easier to solve, but unfortunately it's not. What are some policies or um, projects that Mercy for Animals, what are they working on right now that gets you like really jazzed? In 2018, there was a ballot initiative uh, here in California, on um, based in California, called Proposition 12. And in a nutshell, what Proposition 12 did was it asked California voters, do you want pigs to be able to turn around mother pigs during their lives? Do you want veal calves to have space? Do you want egg-laying hens to be able to spread their wings? Really very simple, um, getting these animals out of cages. And not surprisingly, it passed overwhelmingly. And the California Department of Food and Agriculture was supposed to get to work on regulations. But the meat industry, from the day one this past, started fighting this tooth and nail. And after multiple lawsuits, they brought this up to the Supreme Court of the United States. um, And they accepted the case, which is in and of itself absolutely remarkable and was not a good day for the farmed animal protection movement. We did not think that um, the Supreme Court would take this case. And we really hoped that they wouldn't. But oral arguments were in October. And this is where this kind of turns to a positive. We're still waiting on the decision, by the way, at the time we're all chatting. So I don't know what the decision is. It's expected any day. But during oral arguments, we were really bracing ourselves for bacon jokes and some of the comments that you alluded to, Kristen, of I don't want to give up my burger and things like that. And there was none of that. There was no debate about animal sentience, even when it came to chickens, which is usually where we hear that argument, chicken and fish. There was no debate whether animal protection was a worthy cause. There was no question as to whether the animal welfare, animal protection organizations were credible and factual and making sound legal arguments. 
as scary as it is that the highest court in the land is considering this case, it also felt like we kind of had a big win because we weren't talking about those things. It was somber. It was serious. And we kind of had our day in court, literally. Um, And I think that really gives me hope for the future because we're always going to have to fight these battles. The meat industry is not getting smaller. They're incredibly powerful. But as we continue to have this seat at the table and continue to embrace that our name is Mercy for Animals, in my case, and say that proudly and own that this is a social justice issue that impacts so many, I think that we're going to start to see change. I really do. I am vaguely aware of the U.S. Supreme Court because... Of course I am. <laughs> and so I'm a little bit like scared for you now. I didn't, well, and for us and for everyone, I didn't know this was in the Supreme Court. Um, that's very upsetting. I'm really pleased with the spin that you've given it, but my goodness, <laughs> it's so scary. <laughs> Hoping for good news. Uh, apart from that, though, um, I'm going to give you a magic wand and you can make everything better overnight. And I just want you to like paint a picture for us of what like a world free of like big animal agriculture, like what does that look like? I want to like, let, let's, why, why should people want this apart from all of the like horrible things that we've just talked about? If I could wave my wand first, I would make it mandatory for every child to interact with a farmed animal. <laughs> I think that going to a farm sanctuary and realizing that these animals are just like the animals that are sleeping by my feet right now is really going to change the world. I would make this a part of education for every child um, because they're the future. They're the ones who are going to bring about the change. Second, I would make it so that plant-based food is, again, delicious, affordable, and accessible and continues to be not just innovative, but healthy. Um, And that government subsidies for things like school lunches is including plant-based option, not just including, this is a magic wand after all, is (laughs) defaulting (laughs) the plant-based options. Um, Plant-based options are are the norm. You're not given dairy milk. uh, You're given whatever kind of milk you want, oat milk, soy milk, almond milk, cashew milk, coconut milk, any type of non-dairy milk. And then this is Mercy for Animals mission, and I really think it applies here. It's a world where animals are respected, protected, and free to pursue their own interests. I think that anyone who has ever interacted with any sort of non-human animal knows that each animal has its own distinct personality and opinions and reaches different decisions than their companion next to them and a world where we don't have this need to control animals, this need to exploit animals, abuse animals and eat animals is really what it would look like. I would borrow your magic wand to rewild a lot of our cities and have like space for animals among us so that we don't end up in that separation where like, I can't remember the last time I saw a cow up close, you know? Absolutely. And if we started using our arable land to be creating food for humans instead of just growing crops to feed livestock, we would have that space. We would have so much more space for everyone and more food for everyone that's that's sustainable. So maybe it's not so magic after all. <laughs> <laughs> Kristen, did you have any final thoughts? I do. I've been wanting to ask this question since the very start of the episode, but I saved it for the end. Uh, what is your favorite plant-based food? Do you want like a very specific food or like type of food, type of cuisine? You can either like, if, if you want to stand, like I really like Gardein's uh, like Nashville style. Oh, yeah. I see, I see. So you can, you can do that. Okay. Or if you like a, you know, a jackfruit burger, you know. Okay, cool. So this is kind of, silly, but I make this thing every Sunday that I eat for lunch and I call it Vuna, V-U-N-A. And it's really a chickpea salad, but um, a comfort food for me when I was a kid, my mom would always pack me a tuna fish sandwich. I know I was probably so popular in school because like who (laughs) spends a tuna fish sandwich? But um, 
I always missed it because, you know, that's what I ate growing up. And it's just chickpeas with an immersion, immersion blender and pickles and pickle juice and follow your heart mayo. Huge follow your heart fan, by the way. <laughs> I love follow your heart. And I mix it all up. If I'm getting fancy, I put some plant-based mozzarella cheese on top and put it under the broiler so it's like a Vuna melt. But um, I'm not a huge meat person. I haven't eaten meat at this point in like two decades. So plant-based meat to me almost freaks me out a little bit. Um, I really like things that taste more like what they are, more like plants. But I'm so excited that there are these new products coming out all the time because it's really just opening people's eyes and meeting people where they're at, which is super important. But we all have different taste buds and, and mine just aren't super into the meat stuff. <laughs> I'm definitely going to try a Vuna melt. That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Oh, amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today, AJ. Yeah, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I love talking about our work and it was so exciting to chat with you all about it. Yeah, and if anybody wants to find out more, there's lots of links in the description and on our website. And we are looking forward to talking to you guys on the next episode. Hi team, editing Kyla here, popping in to let you know about some legislation that hit Canadian Parliament April 20th. There was some exciting news outlined in Bill C-47, the Budget Implementation Act, which will include a prohibition on cosmetic animal testing, which is long overdue in Canada. It is not something we need to keep on the books, and it should have been banned ages ago, if you ask me. If you're like, cosmetic testing on animals, that can't be a thing that still happens, or it can't be that bad. It is. It's terrible. It's horrific. We actually did an episode on it that I can point listeners to. And I would really encourage listeners to reach out to their federal representatives to just let them know how in favor our listeners are of banning cosmetic testing. It's not necessary. And, you know, if they hear from the people, it might make it through. Thanks, everyone. We'll catch you on the next one.